Yeah, FEMSA Ventures has been an early supporter. Um, you know, the the ventures arm of the large multinational. That's then, OXO, right? Yeah, they own OXO. Um, they were in the beer business for a couple, I think. They own 25% of Heineken, I think. Yep, minority owners of Heineken. They own the um, the football club in Monterey, the Rayados. Um, I've been over to Monterey a couple times with our partners there and um, just an incredible company, great people, um, super impressive. And we're very fortunate to have them on the team. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Ryan Croft. He's the CEO of Pacto, a Mexico City-based startup. He's also an EIR entrepreneur in residence at Georgetown University. He splits his time between Mexico City and Washington, D.C., Ryan, how's it going, man? Hey, Vance, how's it going, man? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you calling in from today? Are you in D.C., Mexico City, or somewhere else? Yeah, today, uh, this week, I'm in Washington, D.C. I actually live across the river in Arlington, Virginia, uh, and fly to Mexico City on Monday. So uh, in town this week and on the road next. That's awesome. Is there a direct flight? There must be. Only one pre-COVID. There were three or four, actually. Uh, unfortunately, United is the only direct flight, and the times aren't perfect, but um, having a direct flight is, is a luxury and nice to do. So get in and out usually four or five hours. So it's a nighttime flight from D.C. You arrive pretty late in Mexico City, and then a morning flight, 9.30 a.m., you get out of town. So I generally take that one. That's awesome. So Ryan is the co-founder of Pacto, and I'd love to hear more about what the company is and maybe just Ryan, tell us a little bit more about your background in general. Yeah. So first off, appreciate you having me on. I'm a big fan and as a, a former digital nomad, I appreciate um, this community very much. And, you know, I'll, I'll share a little bit more about that life, but um Pacto is uh, a Mexico City-based integrated ordering and payments platform, basically for restaurant software, restaurants and bars in Mexico. So what we mean by that is we basically, through our software, allow restaurants and bars to operate and run their company from front of the house, so websites and digital menus, operations and order management, payments and, and table management, all the way through the bank transaction, and then at the end of the day, real-time reports and analytics for the owners of restaurants and bars all through Mexico. That's awesome. And uh, I believe you guys got started uh, around a year and a half ago? Yeah, exactly. We just hit our 18-month-old company um, about summertime, late summer into fall of 2021, got our start. Um, you know, uh, there's three co-founders on our team. I'm, I'm one, I'm the CEO. Uh, we also have a CTO co-founder, a friend of mine, Gordon Whitehouse. He splits time between San Francisco and Mexico City. Um, Gordon and I actually met in the Dominican Republic, which is a story in its own right. Uh, we were both living and working in Santo Domingo way back in 2007. He had just graduated from Duke and went down for a gap year. And I was a baseball scout. And, uh, you know, my story kind of began after college. I was living and working in the Dominican Republic with a, an embassy family at the consulate. And I fell in love with the country and, and was really obsessed with living overseas. And I fell in love with uh, the religion of baseball in the Dominican Republic. And I found my way through the, the grapevine of, of baseball and baseball scouts and ultimately started representing players myself to bring them to professional teams, the, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Nationals, the Mets. No way, really? dream come true, got to meet Sammy Sosa and a, a couple other legends. And ultimately, um, a great way to spend your early 20s. I ran into Gordon and a bunch of other friends of ours um, that were living there. And, you know, we're traveling and working and being in your early 20s on a tropical island is not a bad, bad way to live. And it was sort of this digital nomad life before it was popular, I guess. And I got big into surfing, scuba diving, kite surfing, tried windsurfing unsuccessfully, and ultimately spent two years there, um, split time between Santo Domingo and Cabarete in the north, the uh, kite surfing beach. Mm -hmm. um, great way to start a career. And I really felt like, okay, I want to live and work uh, overseas. And I want to I show people how beautiful Latin America is. So 
Um, in my early 20s, I, I started an adventure travel and tours company, and I've been to 50 countries now, and many of them were through this experience for five, going on six years. I led trips all over the world, but mostly in Latin America to South America and Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Colombia, and then every country except for El Salvador and Central America, all through Mexico, Caribbean, and Europe. Um, so that's really where I kind of gained this deep appreciation and and respect and and love for the region, uh, the people, the cuisine, the music, the heritage. Um, it's just a special place. And I love showing people around and giving people a great trip and tour of Puerto Rico and Mexico and all through Central America, a lot of surfing and scuba diving, kind of yoga retreats for corporations. It was a little bit of everything, but um, great way to spend your 20s. I think um, the number one thing, though, that I remember from that time, and I was, um, you know, 26 going into my, basically my late 20s, the number one complaint that people had when traveling to these countries was never like, man, the beaches were always beautiful. You know, the food was amazing. It was always about money. It was always about payments and transactions. And I remember very, very acutely the pain of people saying, why do I need to always bring cash to Mexico? Or why is it that my credit cards decline in the Dominican Republic? Or this doesn't work? Or the Casa de Cambio charges you a lot to exchange your money. And that's something that really stuck with me for later in life and, you know, future ideas for Pacto. But gives you a little context of, of how I really had a, a love for the region and a deep respect and admiration for its people. Hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things I, I respect about you as well is um, a being a, a founder that's splitting their time between the United States and Latin America between the U S and Mexico is very interesting. Um, I, I think that's a unique angle that we want to explore more on this podcast. But then that's not even a recent phenomenon. You know, you have a background in Latin America, uh, spending time there all over the region. Uh, and so you're, you're bringing that experience to your role as CEO of this international company. So um, really, really interesting set of experience that led you to where you are now. Yeah, you know, life's a long journey. I'm 39 at this point. I feel like I've lived a couple of different lives, but um, I'm very much shaped by that experience early on. And I think everyone probably has that one trip that kind of just like opens your eyes to the rest of the world. And I hope, you know, I'm a father of three. I hope I can share that same experience with my two daughters and son that the world's a big place and we're a very small piece of it and that respect other cultures and be aware of, of things outside of your home. And for me, it was in Ecuador. I went to Ecuador as you know a young kid with my family and uh, very, very low expectations of just what it could be, and was completely stunned by seeing the Amazon and you know seeing Quito and what a beautiful place it was. And it was affordable. People were so nice and friendly, and the food was amazing. It piqued my interest to say I would love to continue to travel. And here I am, fifty countries later, still have that that desire to see the rest of the world and. Um, you know, for the time being, very much of my my uh, year has been spent in, in Mexico City, and I'm pretty obsessed with the, the growth potential there and feel like it's it's the bastion for growth and for innovation over the next couple of decades. Um, so mm -hmm. happy to dive into any of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are any of the co-founders of Pacto Mexican? Because you have the other guy that's like SF based. Uh, yeah. What, what about the third founder? Yeah, I glanced over. Uh, so our third co-founder, Rodrigo Curry, is a uh, is, is Mexican. He was born in Mexico City. He comes from a completely different background than Gordon and mine, and he's a banker, and he comes from the financial services industry. So, mm -hmm. you know, he, after university, went straight to Santander Bank and was working in the digital payments and kind of digitization part of the bank for a number of years, both in Mexico and another six years, I believe, in, in Spain. Um Really fascinating guy. Um, he's the first cousin of a close friend of mine who I used to work with in my last company. So once we met, I can just kind of tell this is the type of person that I would want to start a company with and go into business with and be a partner. Um, after his career at Santander, he was recruited by City Banamex to come back from Spain to Mexico City and run the Consumer Bank as the CEO. So huge platform. I think it was over 25,000 employees when he was running it. And four or five billion in uh, profit and loss. So uh, it's yeah, a Benamex is definitely one of the, the big banks. 
was a huge experience. And, you know, when we met, this was the time that he was leaving City and sort of felt burned out a little bit, I think, from banking, as you know, a lot of people understandably do. And he was ready to start something new. And at the time, he said, I'm opening up a restaurant in Baja, of all places, and I, I want to be a restaurateur. And uh, he invited me to the grand opening when we were just beginning Pacto. And at that point, he was really just an advisor on the team. And I went there kind of eyes wide open and was blown away. Baja is beautiful. I've been there before once, but um, to be back and to see sort of what he created, a Mexican farm to table company. And at the time he was using a different point of sale and we were exploring, you know, kind of what to build. Um, and he said, look, there's a huge opportunity in this country, but there's two things that, you know, are really foundational that the Pacto is going to need to understand. One is you've got to work with the banks and banks really drive a lot of the value in the small PMAs sector, uh, small, medium businesses, and that uh, there's a huge market there if you can work closely with the bank. And two, we have to think bigger. You can't just have an order and pay platform on your phone, which is what our original idea was. And he said, we need to be the whole point of sale because we're he's just extremely under impressed with the, the current offerings that were available to him. And he being a restaurant owner was experiencing the pain firsthand and how to start the business how to start the point of sale inventory management, building a website, all the pains that you go through to, to start in the first place. So of course, me as an entrepreneur, I just want to hear every problem that he has and dissect it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it was pretty obvious from both sides that, you know, his interest was greater than just an advisor. And we made him a co-founder pretty early on in the, in the journey. And we haven't looked back since. He's been an incredible piece, an invaluable piece and partner of our journey forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to draw a comparison. I hope hopefully this doesn't offend you, but I always remember this company in Canada called Lightspeed POS that became like a unicorn basically in Canada and raised a lot of venture funding. Is is it very similar to what you guys do, uh, Lightspeed versus yes. Uh, Pacto? Yes, and I think this this is a, a really important um, thing to remember. I think what we realize is that. Um, a restaurant in Dubai or Dallas or uh, Mexico City, wherever it may be, yes, there are some differences, but you have some pretty fundamental similarities. If it's in Toronto or Tegucigalpa, uh, you're serving food, you're buying it, you're preparing it, you're serving it, and you're trying to make a profit. There's, of course, so many complexities, I can't even name them all. But at its core, you know, the system of feeding people is similar around the world. And I think one of our strengths as a company is that we see what the world is doing in real time and we're out there and we have more of a global view that mm -hmm. we can take the best ideas or some bad ideas and throw them away from around the world and then tropicalize it to really solve a problem for tropicalize it. <laughs> right no i get it so you, you you kind of like maybe take uh there's probably a good business model of just taking things that work in san francisco or whatever and just bringing it to the Latin American market, bringing it to the Asian market, et cetera, right? Definitely. I mean, so really to bring the point home, it's really there are places around the world that have frankly figured this out of how to properly operate in a digital way, your restaurant or your bar, and have payments fully integrated. But we feel like Latin America is just a couple steps behind and that we want to be there for the merchants to help them run their business in a more efficient way, better cash controls, drive more tips, drive more revenue and reduce their fixed expenses. So it's learning from what's around, learning from what we see in the US and Canada and Asia and Europe, and then applying it to the local market. And it's not as easy as just you know, slapping another logo on it and, and throwing it in a market. There's so many nuances to the mm -hmm. individual restaurant owner, the types of restaurants and what they care about. It's been quite a journey to learn exactly the needs of the restaurant owner. Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely believe it. Are, are you guys 100% dedicated to Mexico right now? Or have you moved to like other countries, Guatemala, things like that? Yeah, so for us, we're 100% focused on the Mexican market today. Uh, all of our um, commercial efforts are only in Mexico and really only focused on the food and beverage sector. So there's always a lot of um, enticing markets to run to. If you look at 
retail or grocery stores, gas stations, you know, anything in between pharmacies, they also run on operating systems and bank payments. Um, but for us, we want to be focused. And at least for the next year, we see a tremendous upside, huge number of restaurants and bars that are underserved or unserved in Mexico. So really happy and excited about serving restaurant owners in Mexico today. Where the future holds, you know, you never know. We think we could expand geographically through some of our, our bank partners or, um, you know, through other partners in the region. But we feel like all of Latin America is really, truly underserved today. But Mexico in particular is the market that we're, we're placing our bet. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, the, one of the biggest markets in Latin America, right? 100 million plus consumers. So definitely makes sense to just absolutely take over Mexico and then things will probably flow naturally from there. That's definitely right. I mean, 110, 120 million people. Um, you got to also remember 45 million international tourists per year is just an incredible number, not to mention digital nomads, baby boomers who have, you know, moved, you know, either temporarily or permanently uh, wintering in, in the warmer weather. So you got an influx. It's a really fascinating place of high growth economy. GDP is on the up but also so many international tourists. And those tourists come with different expectations than maybe what they see. Um, faster, they want, they want their food faster. They want to pay digitally. They want to be able to use mobile wallets or order with their phone, um, depending on where you are. So places like Cancun and Acapulco, Baja, these are areas where it's a little bit of a tricky, tricky combination of it's getting more expensive to live. You hear these stories all the time that labor is becoming harder and harder to find because people can't afford to live next to the resorts where they're serving. So I think a lot of these hotels and nice restaurants and taquerias are, are struggling, frankly. You know, how do they use technology? You look at a, someone who owns a taqueria or a nice restaurant or bar, they're more like an artist than they are a technologist. They make wonderful food, they're interior designers, they design great menus, but mm -hmm. they, they never really thought that I've got to build a website or, you know, how does my inventory management talk with my point of sale payments? So we really feel like we could be the connective tissue to say, like an iPhone or like Apple, it just works in the background. They don't have to worry about it. Let them get back to what they're really good at. And that's making great food and keeping guests happy. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, yeah, you're you're doing God's work if you're keeping that taqueria alive because we we need those taquerias. We're all running on tacos, man. Uh, <laughs> the, the joys of my last two years, really, in going down to Mexico, the food is is truly world class. I mean, tacos get all you know the hype, but the the types of food, the cuisine, the drinks, the mezcal. It's just such a dynamic place. The food and beverage there has been exported all over the world. I think any city you drop into, you're going to find an Irish pub and a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> it's pretty anywhere in the world. It's just ubiquitous. And it's because it just tastes good. It's delicious and has great flavor. So, um, you know, one of the perks of the job is getting to travel around all over the country in Mexico and meet amazing owners of these these multi-unit businesses and and get to sample the food too yeah you must get a, a a lot of like sick dinners when you're in mexico city i'm guessing yeah um, it's one of the parts of the job and really get to meet the creators behind it i mean in this job i i also just meet a lot of some of our investors come from the food and beverage uh, sector so get to meet a lot of people that are creators and owners of restaurants and bars and chains all over the DC area and elsewhere. So it's just really cool to learn from them and ask what their pain points are and how do we kind of figure it into the product that we're building down in, in other markets. No, hundred percent. And just to crystallize for people, um, uh, how Pacto's service works, like do, do you guys have like your own terminal that you're, you're, you're bringing into the companies? Like, you know what I mean? Like a new terminal or, is right. it um, software on existing hardware or is it like a combined software hardware solution? Yeah, it's a great question. So for us, we took the intentional decision to say we want to be hardware agnostic at the beginning. So there's other companies, say, in the U.S. like Toast or Square, where 
the hardware is kind of part of the experience and and that's you know its own approach we took a, a little bit different approach and this might be from Gordon's experience at Apple is make it simple and keep it available to the lowest common denominator. So what that means is we're web-based. So we're primarily just, if somebody has a taqueria and all they have is their own iPhone, you can run a Pacto point of sale from your iPhone. If you have a much bigger location, multiple points of sale, and you have nice big um, tablet screens that are touchscreen and it looks good, that can run Pacto as well. So it's really anything one of the things that surprised us when we entered the market was some of the incumbents really only worked, um, A, they weren't cloud-based. So you had to have a physical server under the bar, say, that ran all of your systems, which was crazy to me. And then beyond that, you could only run it on, say, iPads, or you could only run it on Windows PCs, which is really difficult if you're a business owner and you have a MacBook and your system runs on PCs, but you have to go to Miami for a conference and you can't even check the sales of your of your restaurant in real time. So we took the intentional approach of being open and web-based. Uh, that said, we've also created an Android app for certain situations, but by and large, um, we wanted to be hardware agnostic and to be available and useful for people from a small taqueria to a larger, say, seafood restaurant in Cancun or uh, Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And are you uh, going to the, like, what's your go-to-market strategy? Sorry if it's a boring question, but are you hitting yeah. mostly like the the mom and pop shops or are you trying to get chains on board and get like every Carl's Jr. in Mexico type of thing? Yeah, it's a really fascinating market, actually, when you look at the restaurants in, in Mexico. So for one, Mexico City is a big place. There's 50,000 restaurants alone in Mexico City, which is a jaw-dropping number. I mean, you have 22 million people or something. But 50,000 restaurants, you need that to feed that many people and visitors. When you look at the overall country, I've seen estimates from um, the National Restaurants Association anywhere from 600,000 to 650,000 restaurants. And when you break that down even further, about half of those are unbanked and half of them have a bank account. So what we're really looking at for our business go-to-market model, go to market model is we're not so much focused on those big chains, the top 3%, um, roughly 20,000 restaurants in market today are the Subways and Carl's Juniors that you mentioned or Domino's or, or Starbucks. And we're not really looking at, you know, Maria's taco cart that maybe is unbanked and just um, just a very small business and it could be cash only. We're really targeting that middle section of mm-hmm. it'd be a taqueria. Like small chains and stuff. Small chains, exactly. One to usually 10 locations. Um, but that said, we feel really confident in our, our product and our technology that pretty soon we'll be coming for the bigger guys and feel like our technology will be able to surpass even some of these larger systems, the legacy systems that are out there like Micros and NCR um, that work with the multinationals because there's, there's a lot of frustration. I mean, the first thing you hear when you talk to restaurant owners is people are frustrated with their point of sale and it's difficult because it's, it's, it's how you generate money and it's also what you're in. Not every day, it's every hour, every minute of every day. So we intentionally took extra time, almost, you know, call it eight to 12 months and just built what we feel is the Tesla of point of sale and felt like this was the right approach rather than push something out to market too early. We want to build something that solves a problem today and is, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of the incumbents and then really scale up. And that's the stage that we've reached right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And when, when the typical consumer is, you know, paying with their credit card and, and they're paying for their food, can they see any semblance of, of Pacto or does it, or is it basically like white labeled? Yeah. So that's, what's pretty exciting about, you know, what we've decided to build and how Gordon's approach is what we really value. And one of the core sort of tenets of our technology is technology should always make the experience better. It can never get in the way. So what I mean by that. You could have a, someone sit down at a table. You've got grandma and grandpa, and you've got you know, 80-year-olds and 8-year-olds. It doesn't matter how you order. It doesn't matter what you use to order. They all go to Pacto. So grandma and grandpa could use a, a paper menu. They're technology-averse. They don't want to use an iPhone. 
and then they want to pay with cash at the end of the day. No problem. Our system's flexible and we can accept that. The same bill, the same table, a millennial or zillennial can walk in, use their phone, scan their menu, order from their phone, pay from their phone, split the check, and also divvy up and square out the same bill at the end of the day. So in a perfect world, anyone can order and they can view the menu and have that pay pay experience completely customized to what they want to do. And most of the incumbents, I would say, in market, you can't even split a check. So we're a little bit ahead of the curve there and, and growing and you know building a couple other products that we think could be really transformational for for people to be able to order ahead and um, you know the online ordering experience just being enhanced through our website. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Random question. Uh, there's a, a little chain, I guess probably right in your, your niche, called uh, La Casa de Tonio in Mexico City. You probably know about it. I was pozole. there uh, three weeks ago at the Pozole place. Yeah, they do Pozole. They do uh, enchiladas, suizas, and stuff like that. Have you have you approached them just to make like a concrete example? Yeah. So look, I mean, a lot of these chains, like local chains, um, they would be great. They would be great uh, targets for us. Um, right now, I, I know for a fact that they're with NCR. It's another point of sale system, a, a multinational. But always be closing. Our whole team did an offsite <laughs> last month, and literally om- almost everyone on our team was was peppering the waiters and servers, saying, "Hey, here's a Pacto business card. You should work with us." Um, I love that place. Pozole is like a guilty pleasure. It's delicious. Such an amazing soup. And um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I've been there for breakfast, but had never been there for dinner. And we took a, a, a team dinner just just literally three weeks ago with almost everyone from our team and really love that place. <coughs> That's very funny. Uh, I have a question about Mexico City versus Guadalajara, because a lot of people say that Guadalajara is kind of like the Silicon Valley of Mexico. Obviously, Mexico City is uh, much bigger, more restaurants, and also the the financial hub of the country. Was there ever any thought of basing up in Guadalajara instead, or potentially having like a, a second office there, things like that? Yeah, you know, for us, it was always Mexico City first. I think um, one of our uh, large first investors was FEMSA Ventures based out of Monterey. So there was a point in time where we felt like maybe Monterey would be a good city for us. But I think anyone who goes to Mexico City for the first couple times, you kind of quickly are pulled into the, the energy. Also, some of our first hires were in Mexico City, and it just sort of took a life of its own. Um, you know, I think for us, it's a technology hub in its own right. Direct flights from the U.S., uh, massive market, really strong culinary scene, um, and then some of our earliest investors were from there as well. So it was a natural place for us. To be honest, when we first started, I mean, we're talking like very early days. We were looking at um, different countries: Colombia, potentially Brazil, uh, Dominican Republic. Given my experience there, even the Bahamas, just saying, do we start real small and work our way up? And, you know, did a ton of research. I probably interviewed, I use the word loosely interviewed, but just talked to friends and colleagues or friends of friends at at 200 companies from Shopify and Google Shopping and Stripe and Square and Toast and said, all right, where is the opportunity? And over and over again, I was pulled back to Mexico. And when I went, you know, multiple times to Mexico City, it was it was obvious. This is where the potential is, and this is where we wanted to throw down roots for the company. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. And you said so. You have investors in uh, Monterey and in Mexico City. Yeah. So um, you know, we're really fortunate to have um, pulled in an investment. We raised two million dollars in pre-seed um, early on, and um, you know, are, are are constantly growing that side of the business, but. Yeah, FEMSA Ventures has been an early supporter, um, you know, the the ventures arm of the large multinational. That's then, OXO, right? Yeah, they own OXO. Um, they were in the beer business for a couple, I think. They own 20, 25% of Heineken, I think. Yep, minority owners of Heineken. They own the um, the football club in Monterey, the Rayados. Um, I've been over to Monterey a couple times with our partners there and um, just an incredible company, great people. Um super impressive and we're very fortunate to have them on the team um very well connected and 
you know, we're, we're, we're working on a, a seed uh, raise as well. So more to come, you know, in the coming months there, but um, it's been really a pleasure to work with FEMSA and 500 startups in particular in Mexico. And, you know, we lean on a lot of our angel investors from the financial services sector, banking, and uh, a couple funds in the U.S. Like um, Kevin Carter uh, from SV Angel has his own fund, Knight Capital, TNT Ventures. Um, we had a venture scout from Lightspeed put in a check uh, and a handful of others. So, yeah, we, we have a, a great group of investors that kind of sort of mimic our, co- our company in a way, U.S. and, and LATAM. Cool. So you have a mix of uh, like your your investment base is a mix of uh, American and uh, Mexican investors. Exactly. And early on, we sort of took the approach and said, look, we really want to have people who are in the weeds in these sectors to to come in and help us grow. So people from operators and restaurant chain owners in the United States to you know Courtney McColgan, the CEO of Runa, is one of our angel investors. The the payroll company in Mexico city, um, and, and, you know, a bunch of others like her. So we're really fortunate to work with such great people. Yeah, that's really cool. Have you guys made your way into any OXOs? Have you tried, uh, maybe that's top secret stuff, but, uh, have, have you made any inroads there? I can say that there's a lot with FEMSA that we're exploring. Uh, it's a, <laughs> a dynamic and fascinating company. I mean, they just made an acquisition recently of NetPay, which is a, an acquiring bank um, in in Mexico, in Monterey. They also own Cooking Depot, which is sort of the, the Home Depot for cooking supplies for restaurant owners. So you can imagine, you know, there's a lot that we could potentially do. And, mm. um, you know, I've got to get back down to Monterey. It's a really cool place. And, um, you know, they also, they own the, the soccer club and the stadium. So um, FEMSA will be a, a very solid partner going forward, not just in Mexico. They, they have their tentacles and their reaches through the United States, all through Central America, South America as well. It is a fascinating company to, to dive into. Yeah, it's on the Mexican stock market. I think it's like a, a top 50 stock. I think it's even dual listed in the States. Yeah, it's listed for sure. Last I checked, it was around 25 billion market cap. But who knows what the market today it could be above or below that. Yeah, very cool. So yeah, that's cool. They like I think there is um uh definitely a place for uh what do you call it? Like the corporate corporate venture capital or like the corporate arm or like a VC arm of corporate companies. I know it has a name, maybe I'm not saying it right. C V C, yeah, corporate venture capital. C V C, yeah. We're big fans of it because it, it brings more than just capital. You know, VCs are fantastic and they, they give you capital, which is really the raw material to grow a company. But really what's great about corporates, you know, if you pick the right ones, they can open doors for you. And really it's about distribution. And, you know, I'm a big believer that you can have an average product with great distribution and win the market or the best product in the world with no distribution might not ever really make it out of the the cutting room floor. So it's important to have a great product, but it's equally as important to have distribution. So it's a common theme for us as a company. And, you know, that that's really something I could touch on with uh, the partnership with GetNet and Santander, which is um, an acquiring bank in Mexico that we partnered up with. We made the announcement a couple months ago, and we're working on a couple uh, big initiatives with the bank. That's awesome. What What is an acquiring bank? Yeah. Um, so as best as I can break it down, um, I've learned probably, you know, in the last 18 months enough for a PhD from Rodrigo, who's the king of banking. And Ultimately, in the financial system, with any small merchant, you sort of have two parties at play, or there's many parties, but the credit card in your pocket is a, is the issuer. So whoever may be the, the brand or the logo on your credit card issued you the credit card to then make a purchase. When you okay. are in- and, so, and so just to clarify, uh, so let's just say you had a, we talked about United, let's just say you had a United Airlines credit card, but it was like a MasterCard. Is the issuer MasterCard or is it United Airlines? Yeah, it's probably, um, in that case, it's a loyalty and rewards points through United, but it's probably um, the issuer is a bank. So in the it's US... A, right, because it'll be, and then they partner with like BNY Mellon or Citibank or something to really City, be the issuer. Bank of America, BBVA, yeah. North yeah, Bay, okay. these are gotcha, your large. Gotcha. Santander as well, they have issuers. So 
You have an issuer, you have an acquirer. Really fascinating world of acquiring where um, there's a lot of major global players, but specifically in the Mexican market, there's two, the two top uh, acquirers are BBVA OpenPay and number two is Santander GetNet. And we, so is it basically about the debt? Is it's almost like the, it's almost like the issuer is issuing the debt and then the acquirer is acquiring the debt at like a discount to the note? Um, no, it's the way that I understand it is really the, the issuing bank, the credit card that you walk into my store and you pay with, there's a transfer of funds. So it transfers, it's an agreement. It's a pact in a way of Vance's credit card. Oh, with, pacto. There you go. It's, that's, that's the source of the, the source of the name. Pacto is a, an agreement and it's, it's trust and that agreement between the merchant and the, and the customer. But in that case. Vance comes into Ryan's Taqueria. You have a card in hand that's issued by BBVA. I'm the acquirer. Uh, you know, Pacto is going to accept your funds through GetNet, who is the acquiring bank for the merchant. So those funds are going to be acquired from your credit card. So it's a, a transfer of funds from the issuer to the acquirer. And really, it's called a merchant acquirer because they make money when people bank with them. So you can have, you know, a Santander bank and a GetNet as your acquirer. GetNet is accepting the funds from you digitally. Okay. Okay. Very cool. I'm going to pretend I 100% got that. I like 80% got that, but it's hard to think deeply and also kind of manage the, the podcast. <laughs> Understood. But, but I'm, I'm, glad we're, I'm glad we're able to weave in the name uh, of the... Uh, the company into the the podcast like that it's almost like when they say the name of the movie in the movie exactly it's a little product placement there and it's a funny story i originally you know the company was just called mango commerce as a placeholder and i was trying to think of a name that was easy for someone in the u.s or in latam to say and the word pacto was just searchable and accepted um and the SEO came out pretty clean. And basically, pacto in Spanish and in Portuguese just means an agreement or a pact. And it could be right. religious. It could be political in some ways. But it's also just a business deal and a business agreement built upon trust. So for us, pacto is, hagamos un pacto is a, a, a marketing slogan that we've been really riding, which is, we make a deal. We make a pact with you. It's, we're there for you. And if you think about merchants, they have a lot of mistrust of institutions, of banks, yeah. of government, and we're here to establish trust that they can run their business and they can grow their business with us. So that's really kind of the, the genesis of why Pacto is the name of the company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do, do, if people have like a credit card terminal system, they have to, they switch that all over to you guys, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, so for the time being, you know, we're deeply connected with our partners at GetNet. Um, you know, there are times where people are very in love with their bank and don't want to change. And, you know, we can still serve as their point of sale. But we're very excited about this integrated product that we have with GetNet where all of the systems are integrated. So, you know, your experience, if you walk into a taqueria in Mexico City today, 99% of the time, these systems are decoupled. So it's different from what you see in the US or Canada or, or in Europe or in Asia, frankly. What it is, is you have a point of sale, a system that's its own thing. And then when it's time to pay, if you notice the server goes and runs around and finds the bank terminal and they manually input the digits of the total into the bank terminal and hand it to you and ask if, hey, do you, do you want me to put a tip in here? Kind of awkwardly. Our system, more like Toast and Square, it's a much more main, it's less manual, more automated, where the whole system is integrated. So you can't close out a bill if you don't have, like the payment itself has to tie up with what the bill says in the point of sale. And that really matters for cash management. I think there's a lot of restaurateurs out there that maybe don't realize that money could be taken from their previous system if it's all on cash and you have poor cash management. So Another one of the, the glaring benefits for us, for any Pacto merchant, is better cash management and controls over where what people are giving away for free and, and where your cash goes at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. 
yeah, I think uh, this is a good initiative. You're kind of digitalizing a lot of uh, what, what was previously a very cash-based uh, system in, in Latin America, and it, it totally makes sense. Um, I thought we could kind of maybe talk a bit about like the macro um, macro trends and macro ideas around uh, startups and tech and, uh, and, and sort of forecasting about Latin America and Mexico. Uh, I, I'm sure you have like an overall thesis about what makes you bullish on Latin America and Mexico, and would love to would love to hear that 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 rant uh, that thesis that you have about why you're so bullish on Latin America. Definitely, um, where to begin? Um, just for me, I think number one, Mexico for me is one of the best investments that someone can make over the next couple decades, and there's a few key reasons why. One is just simple proximity, right? Access to two very large markets, Canada and the U.S. Um, Mexico is right on the doorstep. And it's, it's really well located, also has a ton of natural beauty, has a lot of coastline, beautiful, beautiful architecture, food, everything else. All those go without saying. But also when you look geopolitically, um, there's a lot of trouble around the world right now and uncertainty. You look at Asia, China and other places, and then when you start to look at Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, some of the previous sources of manufacturing and partnership and global trade are drying up. So the U.S., Canada and other places, I think, all seem to be moving towards this nearshoring model where automakers, manufacturers, energy sector, technology, rather than go to Asia and, and other parts of the world, why don't we partner with this great neighbor that's right by us? So. I just think in the short, mid and long term, Mexico is a great investment, incredible natural resources, um, and also just really good timing based on what's happening around the world. If, if Mexico, the United States and Canada could really get their act together to be a very powerful trading block again, I think it would benefit all three nations. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a great organization here in Washington, D.C. and Mexico City, ironically called the U.S.-Mexico Foundation. And they've got backing from FEMSA, ironically, and the Packard Foundation um, and others. Um, and to me, I think are really at the forefront of this U.S.-Mexico trade and, and nearshoring. Um, the director, executive director is a friend of mine, and he invited me to join the Advisory Council on Entrepreneurship. So as of January, uh, I've been working a little bit with them and um, I've just really been impressed. I think there's huge upside, and that's why I'm extremely bullish on myself as an investor, both in other companies and my own, um, that there's just loads of potential for technology and otherwise in Mexico. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about uh, the U.S.-Mexico Foundation. Uh, what, what do they do exactly? Could you tell us a little bit more about this group? Yeah, it's, a, it's an association, kind of a cross-border association and think tank kind of bringing together business leaders, political, economic, um, and even higher ed between uh, each country. They do an annual meeting. Last year it was in Mexico City. Um, it's the North Capital Forum and I had a chance to speak on the entrepreneurship panel. But basically it's just bringing the brightest minds together of both countries and saying, how do we deepen the relationship? How do we make this trade work for both countries in every sector? Um, logistics, energy, medical, health, public health, transportation, technology, food, agriculture, it's everything. Um, and it's just some of the brightest minds from Mexico, brightest minds in the US. And I think it's working because if you look at geopolitically, as I mentioned before, there's problems around the world that really start to make you wonder whether globalization or uh, a global world is really a reality anymore. So I think this nearshoring and, and really deeper trade ties with your neighbors is probably something that's a, at the very least a shorter midterm um, kind of uh, trend that, that I'm seeing personally. Uh, so this is a think tank of about 20 full-time employees, but they really pull together mm -hmm. a much deeper list of hundreds of people that are kind of part of the organization writ large. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there's quite a few think tanks in DC that have a, a focus on Latin America, right? I don't know if you're maybe involved in, in any others or there's any others kind of on your radar. Definitely. I mean, it, there's an association, four associations in D.C., so that tells you everything you need. Um, there's a lot of think tanks and international groups, but 
starting first and foremost, the World Bank, the IDB, the IADB, the OAS, there's an acronym for everything. Um, Georgetown University and GW are also both beacons for LATAM. I've been blown away by the number of students, faculty, staff, graduate students and alumni at Georgetown that have a, a link or a tie to um, Latin America. There's a lot of professors that are um, teaching Latin American studies and that are in the school of, school of business and entrepreneurship. And then, of course, you have Georgetown School of Foreign Service, which you know pumps out probably more ambassadors and heads of state than any other school in the, in the world, I would venture to bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be speaking next Friday at the McDonough School of Business, um, not specifically about for Latin America, but definitely it's one of the themes. Um, so yeah, DC and Latin America, for whatever reason, for historic reasons, has had a very deep tie in economically, financially, politically, and through trade. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, because you're really dealing with the two capital cities. It's kind of interesting with uh, between D.C. and Mexico City, as opposed to maybe a, a different type of entrepreneur might do like San Francisco, Guadalajara or something. But you're really hitting like the capitals. Yeah, my only gripe is the direct flight thing. How is there only one? Direct flight <laughs> yeah, that's two? weird, right? Between the two capitals? Two world capitals. I mean, you would think there would be more direct flights between them, but I think COVID, COVID knocked down the demand, and I, I'm, I've heard that there will be more, um, but right now we just have the lone United direct flight. That's wild. And, and by the way, remind me, is this your first venture back startup? Because I know you had the, the Croft uh, tour company, right? But you, you, you're, you've been a serial entrepreneur for a long time. Have you had like venture uh, exits before? Yeah. So my last company, um, the name of the company is Transit Screen, was Transit Screen, since rebranded to Action Figure. But here's the genesis of the story. So as I was winding down the travel company and realized that it's a great lifestyle business, but probably not what my career should be is traveling around the world. um, I I found uh, I I met an entrepreneur in Washington, D.C. who was a Ph.D. neuroscientist from UCSF and Harvard. And he had this sort of government spin out idea of what if you can take real time transportation information like trains and buses of when they're arriving and then put it on a screen in a lobby of a building called transit screen. And you could look quickly and see my train is one minute away or 14 minutes away. So, you know, you either have to run really fast to catch the train or you can walk to a bus and get to your destination. And you know, in 2013, I thought this was the coolest idea. And we were able to start the business. I moved to San Francisco. I lived in Silicon Valley for three years. Um, and we were able to raise about $6 million of outside funding for that company, scaled it up to a couple thousand buildings that this, this software was running in the lobbies of buildings. And then we kind of diversified and started working with Fortune 500 companies like Amazon and um Uh, Seattle Children's Hospital and the Gates Foundation and basically said, we want to use this for employees. So people are traveling around Seattle or DC or or Boston, and they don't know where their corporate shuttle is, but they could also take an Uber or hop on a bike share. So we created this sort of category um, of multimodal transportation on on a mobile app or on a screen, and the company just grew and grew and grew. Um, Ultimately, I had an exit in 2020 and I just moved to the board and was on the board of directors for another year um, and was just ready to get back to Latin America and great experience to grow a business, to have a good financial outcome, um, work with some incredible people all over the world. I mean, that, that company brought me to um, all over the Middle East and China. I got to go to China with uh, the former mayor of DC, went to Beijing, Hong Kong and Shenzhen and and Stockholm and Berlin and just all over the world, um, learning about transportation and urban mobility and the future of cities. And it was an incredible experience. And I think like any serial entrepreneur, you learn from your successes, but you probably take away more from your failures. And what would I do differently if I could start a company? So I think Pacto is really, um, you know, kind of the culmination of multiple companies that I've started in the past. I got to bring in people that I really trust and that are great, incredible co-founders from different sectors. 
And we truly believe we're, we're building the next generational company in the region that can transform not only our company and the people that work there and our investors, but really make an impact for merchants and, and people that live in these regions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, I got to ask, but like you go to these, uh, these small uh, vendors, right? They're, it's their, their heart and soul, their business. And they're just like, <laughs> they're just like, pinches gringos quieren manejar el dinero. <laughs> do, do they feel like they're losing a bit of uh, like the control over their business and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, one question is always like, hey, what if cash is king, right? Or investors or, or friends will ask and say like, some people just don't want to change. And I think our response is always the same. It's that it's inevitable. Look at any other nation, really look at any other region on earth. And digital payment has taken over and it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. If you go to the Nordics in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, about 98% of transactions are cash-free. They're cashless transactions, digital. And that could be anything from a digital wallet, prepaid debit card, debit card, credit card, what have you. If you go in the United States, latest numbers I've read are like in the 75 to 85% of tra transactions are cashless. Mm -hmm. It was hovering around less than 50% of, of transactions in Mexico. Therein lies the opportunity. We don't think it's a if the nation will become more digitized, it's when. And we think that Pacto will be a, a primary driver to digitization because it's not so much the consumer or the traveler or the visitor or the guest who doesn't want to pay digitally anymore. It's that the merchant doesn't have the tool, is not equipped with the technology to accept it in a seamless and frictionless way. And that's really the problem at the core of what we're trying to solve. Where, where do you think payments are the most advanced in Latin America? Because it's probably not Mexico. I remember in Brazil, it was pretty good. Like the SIE dude selling SIE out of like a shopping cart. People do people selling beer on the corner out of a cooler. They were accepting credit card and they had like a little square style dongle. Um, is, is Brazil kind of like leading in digital payments or where, where are you seeing it? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole the whole region is is undergoing a massive transformation. And to me, most of it was driven by COVID. Because if you think about a restaurant pre-COVID, if they were not really feeling the movement to cash-free transactions, they didn't have anything existential to push them there. But the moment that you say to a, a merchant or to a guest and say, you can't go in there or it's dangerous for public health reasons, to use cash, touchless or you know digital transactions exploded. It flourished, and it was an existential crisis. And I think, you know, for better or worse, a lot of the more legacy vendors, legacy restaurant owners, simply went away during COVID because they couldn't compete. They didn't have online ordering. There's no ability to have takeaway orders other than a phone call. In this day and age, you have to be omni-channel. So someone might come to you from WhatsApp and, and reach out to you through there. And then the next day, that same person might contact you on Facebook or through Instagram, through the direct messages and say, six tacos, can I come pick them up? People are multimodal these days, or they're, they're multi-channel in the way that they want to consume information and make purchases. So I think the future is omni-channel, which is just, you have a website, you can have an app, you can have a digital menu, and just give people as many options that are consistent with the same items and the same prices and menus, and you will sell more stuff. Tell me about like, just like the ecosystem of venture capitals and startups in Mexico, in, in uh, Mexico City, Guadalajara. I, I know it's kind of a blanket statement, but like, like there mu you must probably be seeing like a lot of new funds popping up, uh, new uh, funds that have uh, raise money and are being deployed. A lot of new founders um, and, and like international teams where they got a couple Americans on the team, a couple locals, things like that. There, there's a lot of life and, and it, we're, we're, we definitely want to get more guests on the podcast from the VC and entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial community in Latin America. Do you want to just speak on that real quick? 
Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at who we source for our pre-seed, we, we raised $2 million out of the gate, um, you know, and announced last year. Um, for us, it was, it was really a mix. It was either um, individual angels from the U.S. or, or Mexico, and then also um, corporate or, or seed funds. So I think it kind of falls into a couple categories. I would put in like three categories, really. You've got your U.S. funds that are LATAM curious, I would say. Some that are like, hey, we're OGs. We've been investing down here for 10 years plus, your QEDs and Quonas of the world. And then some that are a little bit more uh, recent that they're curious about LATAM. They see what I see. They see this potential and tremendous upside and digitizing pretty much pick an industry, transportation, healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, financial services, what, whatever it may be. Then you've got the local VC community, which, you know, admittedly, I'm newer to. And I think you've got some corporates and family offices that dominate and have a lot of sway. But then, look, there's another 10 to 15 that are seed funds or early stage um, that are great people and that could really open doors and that are going to help a lot of entrepreneurs. And then I think you have this sort of next level of larger funds that some are in Mexico, but I think a lot more I see in Brazil and Argentina and and down in South America. Um, not as many really in Uruguay, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador. Very few funds um, are there. And I've met a few, maybe I can count on one hand in Central America. So I think the two major hubs of venture capital, mm-hmm. your Brazil, Argentina, Block, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is stemming from the success of some of these big players like Mercado Libre and mm-hmm. Know, Kazakh and Monashis and Valor, some of the, the big venture names there that are not only C and NXTP, I think, as well. NXTP is, it- is another one, yeah, in Argentina. Yeah. And if you look closely, many of them have their DNA in a large exit or a large company like Mercado, Mercado Libre or D Local. Mm-hmm. Medellin seems to be a decent hub as well. You have that, uh, maybe you know, uh, Robbie J. Fry, he has the podcast, and uh, there's all like the Rappy Mafia guys. That's true. Yeah. I mean, Colombia is just such an innovative hub. Um, A lot of great companies coming up through there. And, you know, we have some friends over at Bold. Um, It's another fintech that's really growing like gangbusters in somewhat of a similar space. So I think Colombia is a fascinating market, you know, someplace that we've been eyeing for some time. It could be an expansion, you know, down the road, not today. And then Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, you know, all of them have pros and cons. Um, I think many entrepreneurs probably take a look at the Caribbean and for better or worse, and I, I lived in the Caribbean for two years, but they're just smaller markets, you know. Yeah, smaller really populations, hard. I mean, yeah. It's really hard to compare. I mean, the one statistic that just has blown my mind and I can't stop thinking about is the GDP of Mexico City is larger than the whole country of Colombia. <laughs> So really, it's it's hard to compare the the size and scale of of Brazil. Brazil is the largest by far, but then number two in terms of GDP, Mexico is formidable. So when we took a look at all the countries in the region, we knew there's opportunity anywhere. We felt like we could be the largest point of sale company pretty quickly in the Dominican Republic or somewhere in Central America, but. The big, the big fish that was out there. Um, Brazil had already been kind of eaten up, and there's some major players there that have gone public. Mm-hmm. Mexico, Mexico is the market for us. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and we can start wrapping up. I, I know your time is valuable, but I wanted to make sure that we touched upon one thing because we have a lot of listeners. They're digital nomads. They're entrepreneurs. They're very tech savvy, and they're very international minded. Uh, maybe half of our audience is Americans. Um, And so I think there's like a couple stages of being a digital nomad or expat, right? You get that remote job or you get that first online income, you head to uh, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, whatever. You spend a couple of years just hanging out in Buenos Aires and stuff, but you're kind of like realizing that there's all these opportunities, but you're not really... These digital nomads, they're not really getting involved in the local economy right away. They're kind of making their money in the States. They're doing the geo arbitrage thing. They're eating $1 tacos, but they're not really, they're not really doing business in Latin America. But 
a lot of people have are kind of deciding that they want to stick around Latin America. Maybe they just don't like where things are going in the States, whatever it is, or they just, they like the excitement of Latin America and they want to stick around the region. And they kind of like, like every digital nomad I talk to, like after like a, you know, a little while they're, they're like, oh, I just, you know, I want to invest in a vineyard. I want to start a coffee company. I want to, I don't know, open like restaurants, like whatever it is, right? They want to start getting involved in Latin America, but they just haven't pulled the trigger yet. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah, there's levels to the game. And, you know, for me, I I had that same experience in my early 20s. And I think it was eye-opening to me to be the outsider for once. And I was the only gringo in my little corner of Santo Domingo. I lived in Gasque, which is a cool little kind of hip neighborhood next to the Zona Colonial. And there was no one who looked like me. And I felt like, you know, in some ways it was equally parts exciting, exhilarating and terrifying. And I think for me, I also just didn't know how to engage in and necessarily what to do for work. And what's so cool now is that the world is so much more interconnected and WhatsApp and social media and um, forms of communication make it a lot easier to be connected to home and to the people that you love and to your job, but also you can be in the moment in the place that you are. So in some ways, I'm I'm super jealous of sort of all the different tools that are available now to digital nomads. But ultimately, right. I think... Because they have the skill sets. And sorry, ultimately, go ahead. I mean, just ultimately, it's about ingraining yourself into the culture and, and accepting that. And I guess trying to live like a local. My, my motto when I had the travel company was more like a local, less like a tourist. And I think what it really means is do your best when you go to Mexico City, when you go to Argentina, try to get your haircut uh, where the locals get their haircut. Eat where the locals eat. Try to learn the language. You'd be amazed at how uh, accepting people are when you're trying to to learn about their customs or their culture or go to a celebration for a holiday with a, with a local friend. I mean, for me, it's all about learning about them Trying yeah, to Mex- a Mexican wedding is definitely a, a an interesting experience. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. I mean, just the culture itself and the people—they're very warm and they're very open arm and, and welcoming. But it really, you got to put the effort in. And I think I, I see this a lot. I mean, you see it in in headlines and you read it all over Twitter of you know kind of unwanted backlash towards digital nomads and new no, places. I get it. No, but honestly, I think my audience is there, right? They spent like the first six months, uh, expensive Airbnbs, whatever, stumbling on Spanish. But now like my audience is very smart and they're, they're getting residency permits. They're working yeah. toward, they're working towards citizenship in Mexico or other Latin American countries. Right. And so we're like, we're on the ground, we're working towards citizenship. We're getting 12 month leases and stuff. But we're still yep. largely making our money online uh, from from the U.S. or or, or whatever, and uh, I, at least that's where where I kind of am. Where I, I want to start getting involved in the local economies because we 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 see the inefficiencies and like things where we could definitely get involved or things that we're excited about, and um, we have the skill sets too, right? Like digital nomads are pretty savvy. We're coders. We're uh, marketers. We're SEO. Uh, different skill sets. So like we have the the human capital and actually the financial capital too to start getting involved in Latin America. And I think that's going to be one of the next big trends is digital nomads that actually become uh, sort of like operators and investors uh, and, and, and businessmen in Latin America. Yeah. So, all right. I mean, for me, from that angle, we're hiring. Paco.co. <laughs> <laughs> shoot me a note um, or if you've got an idea or you've got a question or you just want to talk to someone about it, ryan at pacto.co. I'm always open. And I think your dream job or your dream uh, coffee shop that you want to open up or surf school is out there. Don't be afraid. Take a little bit of a risk. Take a calculated risk. Find a trusted partner that you can work with. You know, diversify. Like there's, I wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket kind of thing, but um, a lot of the coolest restaurants and surf shops and hotels and, that I've ever been to anywhere in Latam are usually 
bought or started by someone who didn't intend to do that. And they were swept away by their environment. They love living at the beach or in the mountains or on a river somewhere and said, this is what I want to do. My, my job should be what I love to do. So I totally understand it. And don't be afraid to take a chance. Yeah, makes sense. Would you say a local partner is like a must? You know, I think in many places it is. At the very least, you have to have a strong local partner for getting your permits, you know, a lawyer or an accountant, like that's a must. You just have to have local representation because you've probably run into this. The local laws are different, the local jurisdictions and permitting and the process just to get a credit card or just to get anything done. Um, you know, it's it can be a little cumbersome and having that local Sherpa to drive you through and maybe put you to the front of the line in different processes never hurts. So we benefit tremendously from having the sort of three-headed beast and Gordon creating the product in San Francisco and his Apple experience. Then you've got Rodrigo and his deep banking knowledge and as a local Mexican and, you know, understanding the nuances of, of business. And then for me, you know, as a serial entrepreneur and, you know, kind of this international hub of Washington, D.C., we all come at it from a different angle, but I think that's what makes, makes Pacto stronger. Sweet, dude. Uh, very interesting. And um, like I said, we're going to try to get more uh, entrepreneurs and, and VCs on the podcast. Uh, I think it's an awesome direction to go in. Uh, Ryan, I mean, thank you so much for your time. Um, let's uh, take a moment and you can direct the audience uh, to, to anything you want to, to promote, be it your, your socials and, and Pacto once again. Yeah, Vance, really a pleasure. Um, I love this community and I, I want to be a resource. So anyone want to shoot me a note? Uh, I'm just Ryan at Pacto.co. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on, on Twitter, just at Ryan K. Croft on Twitter, but really appreciate the time and, um, looking forward to future conversations. Absolutely, man. This has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, my guest today was Ryan Croft, entrepreneur based between Washington, D.C. and Mexico City. Wow, we learned a lot today. Thanks again, Ryan. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Un abrazo.